0: Welcome to Hot Breath Comedy Fam. On Monday, May 13th, I am teaching a clean comedy workshop. The last four I have taught sold out very quickly. So if you want to learn about clean comedy, the business side, where the line is, how to write clean comedy, go to the link in the description of this episode, and we'll see you there.
1: I don't know. I think in the beginning, you know, from like uh, the first five years, you just got to learn to to do the craft write the jokes, mm-hmm. get comfortable on stage. And then over time, you'll you'll start to see a pattern. You're like, oh, I noticed that they're responding to this better than this. And so I will go there. And then over time, it's like, oh, I guess I got, for me, it wasn't really even being country. It was a, like a lot of my dad's stories. But then when I moved to LA, they're like, oh, no, but you're a redneck. I
0: here we go, Hot breath verse Welcome back to Hot Breath, the show where you learn comedy from the pros. I am your host, comedian Joel Byers, and you are the Hot breath verse If this is your first time, welcome aboard. You are now an official member of the Hot breath verse You can now refer to yourself as a hot brethren and hot sistren as we have a hot episode today with one of my favorite comedians. So many hot tips you're going to get in this show. This is actually an episode from our Q&A series we've been doing in our Facebook group. We've interviewed dozens and dozens of comedians like today's guest all about the craft of comedy. That Facebook group is on a mission to cultivate the next generation of great comics. And if that's something you're interested in, go into the show notes and join our Facebook group. But without further ado, as there is only one thing left to do. And that is inhale a hot breath. With John, please welcome Reap. to the show the one and only John Reap, ladies and gentlemen, John Reap.
1: What's cracking, buddy?
0: Woo! Hey, he, we cr- made it! Yes, yes. There are sound effects as well. You can they can hear in the group, but we can't hear on oh. Skype. So
1: that's fine with me. How are you, bud?
0: I'm doing great. It's so great to officially meet you via the internet i've seen you perform so many times here at the atlanta punchline in the uh, old and the new one so it's great to connect with you
1: yeah that is one of the best clubs in the entire country it's legendary so many great comedians have been through that club old and new um and i'm happy to be a part of that history
0: yeah, and you're—I mean—you've had a lot of success. I mean, you won last comic standing. You've been in a bunch of movies, and of course the the, the TV commercial and all that. But what I'm curious about as a comedian, I'm ten—I'm a little over ten years in now. Um, and people watching, go ahead and comment with questions you'd like John to answer. But I'm going to selfishly open up with my few questions here. What are and you've like you've one of those comics who has like been on the road, forged your skill out on the road. Do you have any favorite like road stories or just some of those like never forget moments, whether with other comedians or just that happened out on that grind that we all know?
1: Yeah, yeah, of course. I mean, um, you know, I, I probably I'll start in the beginning. One of the first m- memorable moments of like. You know, when you start off doing comedy, you find your own little comedy club. You you go there, you do the open mics and that's like one level of comedy that you get comfortable with. And then the next level is, well, can I take this outside of this room and do it in another room?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And the first time I did that was uh, we me and another comedian. Um, we went to a uh, it was a one nighter somewhere in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. It was a pool hall. And when we we were greeted like this, the we walked in the door, and we walked up to the guy, the manager, <clears throat> and we said something like, uh, "Oh, hi, we're the comedians for tonight," and he goes, "Oh shit, that's tonight." Huh? <laughs> we're like, "Yeah, okay." He goes, "All right, well, let's see here. Um, let me get you a microphone and like." <laughs> Like he grabs a mic, he grabs a speaker, uh, he puts us in a corner and he tell he turns the jukebox off, which immediately made people mad. <laughs> and then, uh, he told people to finish up their pool games and, and listen to us. And oh, so, uh, gosh. it was not very warm at all. I remember about 15 minutes into my set being threatened by a guy with a pool stick and, um, and I wrapped it up and just got got my fifty dollars and got the <laughs> hell out of. It. <clears throat> how how long into your career was this? How many years? This would have been like six months in. You know. Oh, uh,
0: dude. Yeah,
1: like a guy just brought me with him to do like fifteen or twenty minutes before him, and uh, <clears throat> I, I didn't know what to expect. I mean, I started at one of the best clubs as well. Good nights in Raleigh, yeah. North Carolina. Is really one of those rooms where uh, they laugh at everything, and when you get used to that, and you go out into the real world, and you realize, <laughs> oh, I got to write jokes. Okay, this right. is tough. Uh, that was one of those gigs, yeah. And what I what I admire about
0: your career is you've you've always been like a self made hustler from the beginning, and that's what I'm all about here on this show in my own career is I like, I recently just shot and released my own comedy special that I released through my website. And I know when you were coming up, still working at the news channel, you actually pretty much, you did like a three camera shoot shooting Mm -hmm. like a half hour that you then sent out to all these different comedy clubs that then led to you actually getting to do comedy full time. But for comedians now in the current climate, do you have any tips for how like comedians can kind of get that self-made grit even in these times and really just create opportunity yeah. out of the situation?
1: Uh it's tougher I think in a way for you guys even though you've got the advantage of, you know, the internet and everyone having a camera on their phone now that's mm-hmm. just as good as the cameras I hijacked from the TV
0: <laughs> and the VHS uh, and all that, yeah.
1: yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but in a weird way the the technology is better for you guys um but but it's also harder to develop i think as a feature comedian because um it's hard to get work as a feature i mean you start off open mic and maybe hosting shows getting around 15 20 minutes but but the art of a good feature is kind of it's harder to come by now because what happens is, you know, headliners today are just bringing their own guys, uh, their own feature acts, people they know, people mm-hmm. they've had relationships with in the past. And um, and if not, then the club will just supply a local guy to do 15 or 20. So it's harder for you guys as features to get work. Um, but the technology's there. But, but that stuff, I would say – Don't, I mean, record as much as you can, you know, you're set and um, don't be too eager to share it because uh, I've seen a lot of guys who have a killer set in front of maybe 10 people and the audio's bad. The video's not that great. The waitress is talking right next to the camera. You can't really hear. And even though in their minds and on stage, they just had a great set. The audience, you know, uh, on their laptops or on their phones watching this at home, they don't know that, and all they see is a bad video, Mm -hmm. and it can hurt you. Uh, I would not share it too quickly. I I, I know it's tough because a lot of times you have the best set of your life, and you didn't record it, and then sometimes you got all these cameras in there, and you set up to record, and you didn't have a great set, so it's kind of like trying to capture lightning in a bottle. You got to try to make both those things happen, and... And I just see a lot, you know, I follow the comedians on Facebook and stuff. And I see a lot of guys sharing stuff that, you know, I would have waited a little while.
0: Yeah. Are are you seeing because you've been doing comedy since the mid 90s. And even you with with coronavirus going on right now, I know you had a trip planned to L.A. to be like pitching a pilot and do all these uh, shows and everything. But it seems like your strategy is now just doubling down on content with your podcast and all the media you're sharing. Is that, does that, is that the move right now for us comedians?
1: Yeah. I think yeah. it's the move right now for not even during a pandemic. I think, uh, okay. and that's the point I was trying to make and I forgot was like, yeah, you guys need to be doing, and I need to be doing more than just working on standup because, uh, the games change, man. It's different. I, I didn't, uh, you know, I didn't start with the internet. I didn't, it didn't exist. So I didn't have to worry about coming up with a funny 15 second video every day or something like that. Uh, I just had to focus on the performance of, and the material and getting on stage. Whereas now, if you're not doing both, you're going to be left in the dark. So you really, really have to create content online, whether it be a show like yours right here or, or a podcast or just coming up with funny sketches with some friends, find a thing and do both. Um, That's what I would tell people now, but yeah, it's tough. I've been fortunate because um, during this pandemic, I I have been focusing a lot on my podcast and uh, my Facebook presence. And, and it's kind of fun. Like I, I have more time to focus on that than I ever have. Mm -hmm. And, and I think, in a weird way, the advantage of this whole thing is I'm getting better at that, and I'm having fun doing it. I've been doing TikTok videos with my mom. <laughs> yeah, you've been on there dancing, <laughs> yeah. So that's, you know I'm having fun walking around the block and talking with her and taking questions and, and working on the country ish podcast and uh, and making TikToks and uh, it's been a lot of fun. But I'm I'm ready for this to be over so I can go back on the road.
0: Yeah, and how how mindful just to thinking of the name of your podcast being Country-ish and you being, I won't say typecast, but almost like known as the Southern comedian and you playing the hemi guy where they cast you as like, we're looking for someone that's white trash, but yet you're this guy with three degrees. So it's like... Where is there is there any conflict with like how your brand has evolved or is it just something you've leaned into and just like embrace as just natural?
1: Yeah, it's something that came out of necessity. I didn't even really think of myself as a country redneck person until I moved to Los Angeles in 2000 when people told me, oh, no, no, you're a redneck. (laughs) Like, but but I'm not. They go, yeah, yeah, you are. And I go well, but I know real rednecks, and I'm not that. But I sound that way, I look that way, and some of my best friends are that. <laughs> but I thought like, well, you know, I gotta put, I, I, I kind of got my feet in both worlds. You know, when I moved, I was in L. A. 18 years, and uh, it was I had to get, I had to figure out something to let them know, like yes, I know I sound dumb to you people. But this is how this is just my accent. This is just how I talk. So I had to develop jokes and material around that just to get past that and get on with the actual jokes and material I wanted to do. Oh. So it's something that came out of necessity. I, I've never really thought myself as one or the other. I've definitely, you know, I'm not a redneck, but I'm not Joe Hollywood. You know, I'm not like some city slicker either. I, I got to figure out I'm this weird, weird hybrid of both. And I think really a lot of people are a combination. It really depends on your percentages. Like I would say when I lived in Los Angeles, I was like, I'd say like 65% more Metro than Jethro. And then when I came back to Hickory, it's it's kind of balanced out. I'm a little bit like 50-50 right now, you mm-hmm. know? But I think it's levels. And that's why my first album was called Metro Jethro. And this podcast is called Country-ish, because I'm kind of country, but not really.
0: Yeah. Is that yeah. something comedians need now more than ever, maybe, with how much comedy there is out there? And for me personally, like my comedy special is called The Trophy Husband, and I've, <laughs> I've really been leaning into like that brand, if you will. But this is also coming after doing comedy for 10 years, so it's like, I'm not... I'm not delusional to think I figured out comedy. I mean, I've been headlining and doing more comedy zone gigs and things like that lately, but like, I'm just scratching the surface only 10 years in, but is it part of the job of comedy is like, what is my angle in this? How can I stand out from everyone?
1: It helps. Uh, It helps you. I mean, I don't know. I think in the beginning, you know, from like uh, the first five years, you just got to learn to, to do the craft write the jokes, mm-hmm. get comfortable on stage. And then over time, you'll you'll start to see a pattern. You're like, oh, I noticed that they're responding to this better than this. And so I will go there. And then over time, it's like, oh, I guess I got – for me, it wasn't really even being country. It was a, like a lot of my dad's stories. Huh. Like I could really talk about my dad for an hour. I mean one of the biggest bits I have is a bit about my dad – Trying to fix a hole in the bottom of a swimming pool by wearing a backpack full of rocks and trying to breathe with <laughs> a garden hose. <laughs> My dad has nearly died so many times, and I have all these great stories about it. And you know, that was like the first thing I realized: oh, I'm maybe I'm the guy that does dad stories, you know.
0: Uh-huh. Uh,
1: but then when I moved to L.A., they're like, "Oh no, but you're a redneck." I'm like, "Okay, well, let's go there then." Um, so. I've really just sort of went with the flow, but I think it does help if you have a clear idea of, if you already know what you kind of are, what your brand is. See, the, most people in the first five, seven years don't even have the luxury of knowing what their brand is or will be. Right. You just get used to being funny and comfortable up there. And then you kind of figure it out, uh, over time. But, uh, you know, there are some people who just, um, uh, who never figure that out? But if you can figure it out, <clears throat> I think it will help you succeed quicker. And you, you being in LA
0: that long, I mean, who were the, who were the comedians you kind of came up with and developed with?
1: Uh, well, when I first got there, I moved out there in two thousand. Um, uh, I, I worked at the Comedy Store. Uh, I knew a guy who was already working there, uh, a buddy of mine named Jeff Richards, very funny comedian. We started comedy around the same time at Good Nights in Raleigh, North Carolina. And uh, he moved out to L.A. about six months to a year before me. And so when I moved, when I went out there to visit, I just crashed with him. And he was already working at the comedy store. And he says, well, come here, I'll I'll get you in the comedy store. We'll get you a job. I was checking IDs. And then they made they make you – yeah, I was like a door guy. Yeah. And they make you a non-paid regular, which means you can check IDs, you can work the door, and then if no one shows up and they need someone to run up on stage, that's your time. And so you just kind of fill in the gaps. And then uh, you do a showcase for Mitzi Shore. That's Polly Shore's mom who runs the store at the time. Uh, she would uh, approve you as a paid regular or not, and then you would uh, – then you'd be you'd be like in that sort of weird graduating class. So in my graduating class, I guess you could say the the times that were hanging out there in the beginning, you had you had Jeff Richards, you had Steve Byrne, you had uh, oh my god, there's Bobby Lee, um yeah, Sebastian Menescalco. Um god, I I'm, I'm forgetting so many people. And there and they see everybody there. Yeah. Cuz it's like the fraternity house for comedians. They've got three different rooms of comedy going off simultaneously and everyone goes there. Comedians like to go there and hang out, even if they're not performing uh, because when you're a headliner and you go on the road, you don't get to see the other headliners that maybe you started with because, you know, it's like ships passing in the night. But when you go to the comedy store and it's a Tuesday, Wednesday, everyone's hanging out because they're not working. And then they'll go to the comedy store and do work on a new set or just hang out. Um, But I mean, you name it, I've worked with them all. Like, I've had to follow Andrew Dice Clay. <laughs> <laughs> that was tough. Uh, I had to <clears throat> I've worked, you know, shared the same stage with Chris Rock, Dave Chappelle, uh Pauly Shore, everybody. Yeah, I mean, buddy, it's crazy.
0: What was the you said the Andrew Dice Clay was tough to follow. What uh, what happened with that?
1: Well, <clears throat> we're polar opposites and uh but I love Andrew Dice Clay I mean, When I was a kid, before doing stand-up I think I was like 19 years old He had an album come out It was a double Cassette tape album Called <laughs> The Day the Laughter Died Oh yeah mm-hmm. Are you familiar with this?
0: Yeah, it was produced by Rick Rubin too And they filmed it at Dangerfields Or you recorded it at Dangerfields in front of like 10 people That didn't know he was going to be there
1: <laughs> That's right, and he slowly walked the whole route Right <laughs> And it's one of my favorite albums ever. I had it memorized. And so I was a huge fan. Jeez. Oh, okay. I mean, just as a kid, I didn't even think I was going to be a stand up. I just love comedy. And mm-hmm. he was one of the guys that, you know, we, we thought was hilarious, you know. Anyway, uh, now here I am at the comedy store. And, and um, he's up there. And then he has to introduce me. And he doesn't know me. And we've never met. But that's how they do it. You know, each comedian goes up and does 15 minutes and then brings up the next guy. And so uh, he just he brought me up, and he had just murdered. He just done great, and uh, I was like, "Man, I love Andrew Dice Clay. I'm a huge fan. What if what, what if he uh, what if he wasn't from the Bronx or the of New York? What if he was actually from the South? What would he sound like?" And I started trying to do my impression of Andrew Dice Clay as a Southern man, and uh, the audience <laughs> was not having it. They're like, no, "Just do your thing, buddy. It's fine." <laughs> It took me about 10 minutes to win them over in a 15-minute set.
0: Oh, yeah. And that that is a lesson every comedian has to learn is, like, do your thing. Don't try to adapt to whatever happened before you. Just do you and bring the audience to you. It's a tough skill to hone.
1: Yeah, it, I mean, I, I that was – I shouldn't have spent 10 minutes trying to do figure that out. I should have made one joke. That's, I mean, that's another thing that they do at the comedy store. It's almost like – it's almost like a given that whoever is in front of you is going to introduce you, and they might they might do a jab, they might do a quick little ball bust on you, mm-hmm. and then when you go up there, it's your turn to do that back. But you don't do it for 15 minutes. You just <laughs> you, know, you say one 30 second thing, and then you just move on. Um, that's totally acceptable. I think what I did was just uh, I I didn't know what I was doing. You know, I was I was starstruck because it was Andrew Dice Clay. Wow.
0: That's so gnarly. Oh my gosh. Yeah. So let's um let's get into these questions here. Let's get into some fan questions. I've hogged enough time. Um, but did you work with
1: Mitch Hedberg coming up? By the way, I did one time. Um, he was uh, the headliner at Good Nights. I think I was the I was the MC of the feature. I can't. I think I was the MC. Yes. And he, um, this was on his downward spiral. You know, he was getting really heavy into drugs and. Mm. He, um, I mean, he did. He had sold out shows and did great. But I remember after I came off stage, the the uh, feature act goes on stage, and the manager of Good Nights is like, "John, have you seen Mitch? I don't know where he's at. We, have you seen him?" I'm like, "No, I don't know where he's at." He goes, "All right, well, if the feature act gets done and he's still not here, I need you to go up there and just do more stuff." until we figure it out. I'm like, oh, but I'm out of stuff. <laughs> right. Because <laughs> <laughs> I don't care. Don't come off that stage until I tell you. I'm like, oh, okay. <laughs> and then uh, I went on stage after the feature act was done. Oh, I'm sorry. Actually, he, he, he showed up right before the feature act got done, and he walked in. You know, I love Mitch, but this is a true story. He walked in with a phone book, and he had, like, powder on it, and he was licking the powder off and doing like this. And he's like, all right, get that guy off stage. Let's go. I'm ready right now. Let's go, 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 go. Get him off stage. And they're like, okay. And then uh, he goes up there and murders for 45 minutes to an hour. And then he left. He didn't do any kind of meet and greet. He didn't sell any merchandise. He just bolted. But he was really heavily, heavy into a, an addiction at that point. Yeah. And he, he died probably maybe a year later. Man.
0: Oh man, yeah, very yeah. sad.
1: But I, I did get to see him work, and it was it was great. There was no one like Mitch Hedberg, for sure.
0: Yeah, I always like to ask people who have been out on the road in that grind like you. Like I've had Tom Rhodes on here asking him about Mitch as well. Like he was just one of my favorites. So I always like to know who got to cross paths with him and just yeah.
1: connect. So very nice. I wish I would. I didn't get a chance to connect, but. Yeah. Um, I mean he was just so far gone but I did get to enjoy him live. That was that was that was fun.
0: Are there any comics that you've been able to like work with or connect with or learn from where you're just like I can't believe this like I've been I'm at a point in my comedy career where I'm actually coworkers with people like this. And maybe what have you learned from
1: them? Uh yeah, I mean definitely in the beginning um let's see here uh George Lopez actually came through uh, Raleigh and was very, very nice to me. Uh, I was starting to get really good as a MC and a feature. And he was like, "Damn man, you you got something going on here. You should really think about doing this, you know, for a living. And he gave me some advice and told me to look him up when I got to LA and all that stuff. And then uh, same thing with Rodney Carrington, Uh, Rodney Carrington came through good nights and uh, we just hit it off really good. And, and then, um, we hung out and you know, I told him some ideas I had for jokes and he goes, Oh yeah, that's good. You should use that. And then, um, and then fast forward later, I, I ended up on his sitcom, which is kind of crazy. Um, but yeah, I mean, uh, let's see here. Uh, trying to think was it no, it was Chris rock actually, uh, gave me a huge compliment one time. This was at the comedy store. It wasn't even a compliment. It's more of like he proved me right about an argument I was having with other comedians, <laughs> Like me and some other comedians were just kind of hanging out in the parking lot of the comedy store and we were arguing about who we think is the best blue collar comedian, you know, between Ron White, Jeff Foxworthy, Larry, the cable guy, Bill Engvill. We were like arguing and everybody had a different guy. And then uh, Chris Rock happened to overhear our conversation and he walked up and he he tapped me on the shoulder. He's like, he's right. It's him. He's right. And then just, and then just went and went away. So uh, I don't know. There's a lot of people uh, in the beginning you learn from, but then at some point you got to, you know, you got to just take it on your own. And who were you right about? Who did you say? <laughs> I didn't say. Uh-huh, see? <laughs> I don't want to upset anybody, but here was our argument. Um, one guy said Foxworthy. And I go, well, yeah. He goes, well, without Foxworthy, really, none of those other guys would have been what they are because he was the he was the main headliner that started the whole thing. And then one guy said, uh, no, it's Larry the Cable Guy. He's obviously sold so many uh, records and had so many specials. And, uh, you know, he's now with Disney. He's the voice of Mater and all this stuff. And I said, well, I think it's Ron White because he's actually closer to the real deal than, than the other ones for me. And plus, you know, he likes to have a good time like me. So uh, yeah, <laughs> and uh, Chris Rock agreed with me, but that's just our opinion. And no one said Bill Ingvall? Is that? Oh, <laughs> well, I'm sure one guy did, but I, I, I forgot.
0: Yeah, that's yeah. My favorite, my favorite Ron ride story you have is when you were like opening for him, and you had to go pick him up from the hotel, and he answered the door with a joint, and he's like, "We gonna be late," and
1: that that's just. <laughs> yeah That's man classy. i mean i think everybody who's ever worked with ron white has one ron white story like that because uh, he's a he's a real deal man
0: oh you do when i got to i got to host for him one time at the old atlanta punchline and i remember singing the green room with him and i just remember he just goes if this was 20 years ago i'd be in here banging a waitress right in front of you I was just like, <laughs> okay. And that was like my first time working with a comedian at his level and I was just like, "Oh, I guess we made it if he's saying that in front of me." You know, it's oh, I feel uh, like yeah. a comedian That's, now.
1: <laughs> uh, yeah. That's great, man.
0: So this this ties into the first fan question as well. This is DJ Underwood who says, "Um, were there any southern comedians that influenced you or that were your heroes growing up?"
1: Um, well, you know, This goes back to my point original. I never looked at myself as a country, redneck, southern comedian. Mm -hmm. Uh, I happen to be from this area and have this accent, but that's not – I didn't look up to that. I mean, unless you count Andy Griffith. um, I love the Andy Griffith show. I love Don Knotts. Uh, Those guys are southern. But, you know, in terms of the comedian, I mean, to be honest with you, the first one that really inspired me was Bill Cosby. Hmm. (laughs) Yeah. What was it about him? Well, he was, uh, he made my dad laugh. And I remember we could watch his special. He had a special called Bill Cosby himself. And he came out on stage and just told these amazing stories. And it was clean. And the whole family could sit there and watch it and laugh. And I remember thinking, wow, that guy is making my dad laugh really hard. I want to be able to do that. And so, Bill Cosby was the first comedian that sort of made me want to try this or, or think about it, you know, or fantasize about it. And then as I got older, it was, uh, you know, um, Steve Martin, I loved mm. a lot. And even when I was a kid, you know, a lot of kids would watch Sunday morning cartoons, you know, um, I would watch Jerry Lewis and Dean Martin movies. Uh, cause to me, Jerry Lewis was basically a human cartoon. He was hilarious. And so, it was never really like a big Southern comedian. Um, I just happened to like what I liked. Mm. Sorry, I just had a text. No, you're good. But later on, as I got older, and I started realizing, oh, I actually am uh, redneck to other people, and I got lumped into that category. Then I started watching the other ones, and then I started appreciating them. But I didn't grow up that way. Mm-hmm. Good question. Like Rodney Carrington to me, Rodney Carrington to me is one of the funniest human beings on the plate face of the planet. And that's what I'm familiar with his
0: name. And I know he sells out and kills it everywhere he goes, but he's honestly, that's he, funny. He's kind of like, um, it's kind of like a James Gregory and that they found an audience and can sell out, but still mm-hmm. most people may have never heard of him. You know, it's like they found an audience and just can kill with it.
1: Yeah. Yeah, it's true. I mean, uh, Rodney started in, uh, like Oklahoma, Texas, and just you know, it's weird. There are people from Texas who are who can make a great living, and no one knows who they are outside of Texas. That's how big that state is. But um, it's crazy. Yeah, definitely. Uh, Carrington was one of those guys. He had a lot of uh, sold a lot of records back when people were selling records. You could actually sell music. He had a lot of funny songs, and he was on radio stations nonstop with uh, John Boy and Billy and Bob and Tom and all the big syndicated radio shows. And he just got big that way. He got a sitcom for a couple of seasons and then, um, and then that was it. But he still sells out everywhere yeah. he goes anytime he goes there. It's crazy. I see him, I see him his tour tour schedule. I'm like, wow, this is amazing. He's, he's able to keep, keep this up. But yeah. I don't, I'd like to, I'd like to find that crowd. I'd like to be able to do that.
0: Yeah. What do you think the secret is to finding that crowd?
1: That's a good question. Um, I don't know. I mean, I think it's, you got to connect with your fans and you got to stay in touch with them. Mm -hmm. Like I think you really Mm got to do a lot of meeting and greeting and, and, um, one-on-one now with social media and stuff like that, you really got to be on top of that game too. I think it's that. And, uh, Having having a different like the those guys that we're talking about are very good storytellers and not so much joke tellers. And I admire both. You know, I'm like, hey, if you're making people laugh at the end of the day, I don't care how you do it. Yeah. Uh, But the difference between a joke teller and a storyteller is if you hear a joke one time, then that's it. You, you know, you might tell that joke to someone else, but you can't keep telling the same joke over and over again because people go, yeah, you just told that or whatever. I've already heard it, you know, but a story can live forever because a good story, it's got jokes in it. It's got you, you act things out. There's characters in it. And sometimes it evolves over time and people will say, oh, my God, I hope he tells this one again. Because I remember loving that story. I forgot how it goes. It's so long that it's not just one joke. And so a good storyteller can have a career like that, that can tell the same stories over and over again, and no one care.
0: Yeah, uh, Bert Kreischer, a prime example with his machine story, it's like
1: people want to hear it every single show. Right. They're, they're, Brian Regan has jokes, stories like that, where people want to hear those stories again you know, and sometimes they won't even, they get mad if you try new stuff. <laughs> hmm. And that was your
0: big breakthrough is when you finally told that story of you getting kicked out of the Carolina Panthers game. That was kind of the moment in your comedy where you're like, oh, there's like another layer to this that I can do.
1: Yeah. Um, that was sort of the whole reason why I had the confidence to get on stage to begin with was that, that happening. And, um, you know, it was one of the first things that I, I I talked about that was a story Mm -hmm. that started with just as a story and not like a series of jokes or one joke. And then over, you know, over time telling the story many times you learn the funny parts and you learn, Oh, well, there's a joke opportunity in here. And then, so you sort of write jokes around the story, as opposed to coming up with a joke and creating a bunch of jokes that, that might lead to a story. It's like, I don't know. That's one of the big, yeah, I'm a storyteller guy and I like I like real things that happen and it's just easier for me. It's also harder for people to steal jokes from you if it's something that happened and is so bizarre and crazy that will only work in a story that people can't take. I could never take Bert Kreischer's machine story because people would, you know, be like, Well, that's ridiculous. That's that's Bert's story as opposed to one joke. Let's let's get into
0: the storytelling a little bit deeper here, because that's something as comedians, especially me trying to, like, peel back another layer in my comedy and be more kind of autobiographical and storytelling. How what is the process behind? Like, this is a funny event that happened in life like your Carolina Panthers. But then yeah. how do you translate it to stage? That's something a lot of people don't understand is comedy is a new language that you have to translate your life experiences into. So what was the process of this funny thing happened, and now it's like a laugh, 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 laugh.
1: Right. Okay. So, for example, uh, the Carolina Panther story. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a lot of things in there that I thought were funny to mention in the story. Um you just got to kind of like in your head, you got to tell it to yourself a couple of times, maybe even throw it on some friends and don't tell them that I'm thinking. I, I'm, I would never tell a friend, hey, do you think this is funny? And then try it out because right, right away they're like, no. So I would just sort of like in random conversation, throw the story out there. And if it happens to you, your friends are gonna are going to want to know about it. Mm-hmm. So you're going to get used to telling this story because this is a big thing that happened. So in the uh, telling of the story off stage, you got to kind of learn and pay attention to like, well, what 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 was funny, what wasn't funny, blah blah blah. And then um, you just got to take it to the stage. And what one thing I've uh, I found that helps later on, I found out this later on, was sometimes it's better to start with the punchline, if it's a long story. So I wouldn't go up there like, oh, so in 1995, me and my friends went to a Panther game. I start the story with, I got kicked out of a Carolina Panthers game for dancing in the end zone with the mascot. And people go, what? Then do you tell the story? Uh, It's not like, you kind of keep, you grab their attention right away with a major headline. And then you give them bits as you go. Well, here's what happened. You know, uh, other, otherwise, if, if you're just telling a story from the beginning, you could lose people.
0: Good hook. And then to find those details, is it, you just tell it as it happened. And then over time, you pay attention to what gets a laugh there and a laugh there. Cause you mentioned seeing, be able to add jokes throughout it. Where do you find those?
1: Yeah. Um, a couple ways after telling it a couple times, you know, it, it, it's trial and error. And then, uh, after telling it a couple of times, you'll listen to what the crowd laughed at, and what they didn't and, and know that well that worked. And then if you record your set, you know, and you go back and listen to it, you can think, oh, man, I should have said this. Because sometimes when you're on stage and you're performing it. You're not 100 uh, percent in your brain thinking of a, a new approach to it. But if you're outside of it and you're listening to it later, you can really dissect it. And come up with jokes that you wouldn't have thought of otherwise. So that's one way of doing it. And another way, over time, the more and more you get and a crowd laughs at something that you didn't expect and then you just improv a little bit and see where that road takes you, sometimes that can lead to some comedy gold. Uh, Sometimes it can't, but it's trial and error. Mm Mm-hmm. Awesome. Yeah. And uh, DJ said, yeah, that's what Bert does
0: with his machine story is he hooks them in with got involved with the Russian mafia and then breaks it down from there. So, yeah. Yeah, that's gold. Awesome. And listening to the set.
1: Go ahead. Jokes are different. I think you want you want the joke. If it's just a joke, I think you want the punchline to be a a crazy twist that they didn't see coming at the end. But -hmm. if it's a story, I think it's okay to sort of lead with the the craziest thing, and then break it down.
0: Yeah, and this this is actually something I was curious as well. This comes from Trent Babb, who asked, um, do you rehearse
1: looking at the mirror? I did at the beginning because I thought that's what you were supposed to do. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And I was interested to see what I looked like before I had a video camera. Um, but no, that's not... That's really not good because when you're on stage you're not looking at yourself, you're looking at the crowd. Um yeah, just the other day I I was uh I watched the movie Joker not long ago with my mom and uh the new Joker. It's really good. Yeah. And it reminded me of uh the uh the movie uh Robert De Niro did as Rupert Pupkin. and I forgot the name of that movie. Um Oh King of anyway, Comedy. King of Comedy. It's a Scorsese Thanks. movie, yeah. Yeah, so there were some elements of that in Joker, but the point I'm trying to make is, if you noticed Rupert Pumpkin's basement, his wallpaper was a crowd of people looking at him, mm-hmm. and that's more realistic than looking into a mirror.
0: So yeah, the, no, that is what's interesting. I, yeah, I wonder because your voice is so distinct. If you were like rehearsing it off stage because it is more of like how you're saying things adds a whole new layer of humor beyond just the actual verbiage of what you're saying. And that's sure. a compliment yeah. by the way. Being able to elevate your material like that is very challenging.
1: Yeah, I mean I don't know. I always I always enjoy the kind of comics that um that used everything. Not just words, but their face, their whole body, uh nuances. I liked all of it. And then um Sometimes you don't prepare for that. You just get up there and you're telling a story and you make a face that you didn't think was funny, but they did. And then (laughs) it gets a laugh and you go, oh, I can hold that for another two seconds. Mm -hmm. Uh, Anything to get laughter. I mean, that is the the goal for comedians, laughter.
0: All right. And this next question. Yes. Remember, kids, it has to be funny. (laughs) Funny above everything first. Okay. Right. Yeah. A lot of times it's like, I want to have a cool attitude on stage. Well, it's like, well, be funny. Be yeah. funny first. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> let's see the next question here. This is from Dee, And she asks, of course you want to murder, but don't you think you did your job if only a few people laugh? What makes you say, I did good?
1: Well, if only a few people laugh in a room full of 500, that's not good. Um, but if only a few people laugh in the room of a few people, that's great. So it depends on how many people are in the crowd, but you want the percentages to be more people laughing than not mm-hmm. now. Yeah. I would say murdering is 98 to hundred percent of everyone laughing very hard that they can't breathe. That's murdering. Um, but you can, you can still have a great set of. And only get about fifty-five percent that are laughing so hard they can't breathe, and then that will that will also uh, make other people laugh sometimes, and, and they'll feel like, well, why am I not getting this? I've, why, why is this guy laughing so hard and I'm not? I don't know. Maybe it's something I'm not getting, but yeah, I mean, uh, a few people is not murdering. I mean, you can feel good about yourself, but I wouldn't share that tape with everyone uh, because it's not as good it will never be as good to other people as it was for you because you were in your body when it was happening and you were experiencing all that love. They're just at home. or they're driving and they're looking at the car and they're looking at, looking at you and it's like, what, what is this? Mm-hmm. So it needs to be, I feel like that, that question was from a, from a comedian. Um, for sure. it, needs to, it needs to be, if you want to share it and you want people to like it and think you're, you're good at what you do, it needs to be a good quality video. But keep at it.
0: Yeah, that was something Nate Bargatze said when we did a Q&A with him was like being in New York and seeing a comic like bomb. And he was going to be like, it's all right, man. Yeah, I struggled with him, too. But then the comic got off and was like, yeah, that was a good show. And he was like, what? <laughs> it's like, that was yeah. awful. He's like, you bombed. I mean, he didn't say it to him, but he's like, remember him. He said that was a moment for him in his career where he was like, oh, some people just aren't even listening to the audience.
1: <laughs> right. And they're delusional. Right. I mean, at the end yep. of the day, you really, <laughs> I mean, as, as a comedian, I want people laughing. Mm-hmm. Um, and if that's not happening, then I'm not a comedian. Maybe I'm something else and I can make a career at that. Maybe I'm a good public speaker. Maybe I'm uh, you know, maybe I'm good at uh, roasting or something, but if they're not laughing, then that's, that's something different as a comedian. I want laughter.
0: As do I. So let's um, just a few more questions here. The next one, oh Trent, actually had a follow up on the storytelling. With do you ever find your stories get bigger laughs from the characters' reactions as opposed to your inner thoughts?
1: Mm, phrase. Say, ask me that again
0: yeah let's see here do you find your stories get bigger laughs from the character reactions as opposed to your inner thoughts so m- maybe it's saying like do you find there's more laughter when you take them to the moment and create that interaction as opposed to I remember this thing happening that time at that place when he said this you then take us to that moment of him saying it and you make it current mm-hmm. I
1: think people like it anytime in a story if you if you take on um, you, the role of other characters. Like, you know, people say, oh, this guy does a good impression of George Bush. Well, everyone knows who that is. But if I said, oh, and my dad, and I started getting into what my dad sounds like and what, what that is, that's a character, even though they don't know who it is mm-hmm. it's something different than the way I sound now and you're acting it out it's it's another layer in your story so yeah um, sometimes the characters that I portray in the story gets bigger laughs than me telling a joke or another random thing um, people seem to like it when I uh, do my dad a lot you know when I when I take on my dad's persona. And it's really not even that close to what he sounds like. I just thought this is a funny sounding thing. (laughs) So, uh, if I were doing an impression of my dad and people knew my dad, you'd be like, he doesn't sound like that. But the people don't know my dad. So they just have to believe me. (laughs) But um, I think that's what they were asking. I'm not sure if I answered the question.
0: Yeah, it seems like that's what it is. Like, do you find more like laughter? creating characters as opposed to like maybe having like an inner monologue with the audience maybe type Like I feel like the more I feel like yeah Act outs and characters add a new dimension to your stand up and make it more of like a show as opposed to like a monologue
1: And again, this is just what has worked for me Yes. Um, You know, there might be other people who uh, don't do that and do I mean, there are tons of people who don't do that and are very successful and very funny. I'm only telling you what has worked for me.
0: Dude, what I love about you saying that I've interviewed over 200 comedians and it that has been a common theme of it is like this show is all about comedy advice. But most comics are like, now this is what worked for me. I'm not saying this is the law. This is how I did it, but it may not work right. for you, or you won't. Only a piece of it may work for you. Like there's no one way in this comedy game.
1: A hundred percent. I didn't know that I when I wanted to be a comedian. I didn't know I was going to be a, a southern sort of uh, country uh, storytelling comedian because I didn't. I had no idea what my how I was going to be on stage. I just knew that I made my friends laugh, and I like making my friends laugh. Can I do that in front of strangers on a stage? Let's go for it. And over time, I, I just figured it out. Mm-hmm. But, you know, that's just what worked for me. I, I don't know. Everyone's path is different. Everyone's strengths are different. Uh, are different. Everyone's weaknesses are different. So you just got to figure out what your strength is and then, you know,
0: go for it. Ooh, that's gold. Figure out your strength and then go for it. How long into your career, because you've been doing it since the mid-90s, Um, And I've been doing it like just a little over 10 years and I still feel like I'm just like scratching the surface on figuring out this comedy thing. When did you start to be like, oh, I think I'm getting into a rhythm here. I think I'm starting to figure out at least like the basics of this. Like Mm -hmm. how long did it take you to get that confidence?
1: I got I got lucky again. I came up during a time where I was able to get a lot of stage time uh for not being a you know new york or la comic i mean raleigh at the time uh, good nights and maybe one or two other spots was the only place to do comedy but um i was uh, doing a lot of hosting doing a lot of MCing. so I, I i got a lot of reps in mm. um and i was high energy uh, way more than i am now they like you know uh comedy clubs Uh, like high-energy acts if you're not, you know, if you're not already famous and don't already have a fan base and you're some no-name off the street, they like it if you're high-energy because it makes the crowd engage and everyone has, you know, it's just more fun, I think, for them. Um, But, so I was high-energy and I got a lot of work. Um, But I think, oh, okay, I can tell you what it was. Um, So I was probably doing... I maybe had two years under my belt doing comedy. I, I wasn't a feature act yet, but I, I knew I had 30 minutes in me, but I'd never done 30 minutes at one time. Um, I had done 10 here. I'd done seven here. I'd done 15 here, different stuff, but I've never pieced it together. And um, the uh, it was a Wednesday night at Good Nights. The headliner did not show up. And the club owner was like, well, let's move the feature act to headliner. Let's move John to feature. John, you could do 30 minutes, right? I'm like, yeah, you betcha, boss. <laughs> and so I, I knew I could. I just had never done it. And and it just happened to be, the headliner happened to be a, a black comedian. And the whole room was all, all black people. And, uh, you know. That was intimidating for me because I'd never experienced that. And uh, I used to dance on stage. I used to make fun of dancing by dancing. I used to call myself <laughs> the Mickey Dance Machine. And I would go on stage and do uh, random stupid dances like, you know, uh, shovel, rake, mop. I did My favorite dance I did was one called Any Guy Washing Women's Laundry in the 1800s Dance. Very abstract. Wow. But I had all this stuff. I had it. I had it set to music. I had every dance had its own song, and it was all timed out. And to my own credit, I, I can I can dance. I got rhythm. And so uh, I went on stage, and I started dancing. And I still think to this day there is nothing funny, nothing funnier to an all black room than a white guy dancing. <laughs> and and they loved it. And I was dancing. They the going yeah. And then I got done dancing, and then I started getting into my routine. And they were like, No, no, we need you to dance again. And so <laughs> I would do a bit, and it would sort of taper off at the end. It was losing momentum. I'd just go, Hit it, Paul! Like that was the DJ, Hit it, Paul! And then he'd play music again. I started dancing again. But it did, that was the first time I did 30 minutes. And it was the first time where I, I, I got big laughs and then it tapered off and I got them again. Like it was a journey, 30 minutes. And, and it made me realize, Oh, I could do this. Mm-hmm. I could do this. If I did this again, over and over again, I could figure this out. And, um, that was a, that was a, that was one pivotal moment that I'll never forget. It's like, okay, I could figure this out. This was, this was not too bad. It was actually really good. and and I learned from that but yeah that was that was a big one
0: yeah big yeah that's a big benchmark for all comics when we do have shows where you overcame the odds and survived right. and you're like oh, this isn't as bad yeah oh dj said you have to do a dance video uh calling out bert and tom you should do that
1: man believe me i've already thought of it oh um, come on there's a uh, the their dances are not really like, I got to be honest with you, I, I could dance better than them, um, but their dances are funny and they're very highly produced and they spend a lot of money on those videos. <laughs> yeah. and, and let me just tell you, they will out budget me in these videos. I will not be able to keep up money wise with the, the product they're they're churning out. But if it were a straight up dance competition, I, I could do that. But I I like to be funny with it, you know. Um, I, I, there actually is a video on YouTube that people wanted to see it. I retired my dances. Like one, one day, I just said, okay, I'm not going to be that guy anymore. I'm just going to focus on um, better stories and better jokes. And I'm getting older and I didn't want to dance every show. And so I did one show at a big theater uh, and I said, and I recorded it. I said, this is the last time that I'm ever dancing. And I recorded it and it's on YouTube right now. If you type in, uh, go to YouTube and look up uh, the Hickory Dance Machine or Hickory Dancing Nut, mm-hmm. you'll see it. <laughs> how long into I mean, your it, career was it, that? It's just, me, it's just me on stage. It's not like uh, you know, it's, it's not like a music video. It's just me performing in front of an audience. That 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 one last time.
0: How how long into your career was that? Where you're like I don't want to dance anymore.
1: Uh, probably. Uh, Around 2005, 2006.
0: So, about 10 years into it, I guess, you were like, all right, enough dancing.
1: Yeah, I'm done with that. I'm done with that part. Nothing wrong with it. I was honestly just getting tired. <laughs> it, was like, <laughs> it was exhausting, and I was kind of outgrowing it. it. It looked weirder. I mean, as a young man, it's kind of funny, kind of cute. Like, oh, look at that guy. He's got rhythm. He can dance. Not bad for a white boy. And then you get in your 30s and 40s. People are like, oh man, this is weird. Why is he dancing? You know. So, gotcha. uh, just that to me, in my opinion, I felt like I'm just gonna be done with that. That and that's what I was looking for when asking about like
0: when you felt like you were getting to another level is like me ten years in. I'm like, okay, I'm ready to like up. The level a little bit like my writing's always been there but now it's like what I want to get more in storytelling and more performance and that like I like how you said about 10 years in is when you're like all right I'm ready to ready to like re almost like reassess what I want to do with comedy so I'm glad yeah. you had that around the same time so that's reassuring
1: I mean really my whole career started with dancing I was dancing at the Carolina Panthers game with the mascot oh, that's right. Which, yeah. Got the whole ball rolling. And, um, and then I thought, well, let me take it to the stage. I'll, I'll show what I was doing uh, at the Panther game and I'll come up with other dumb dances. And I had a whole routine about dancing. And I just, I she just started getting out of shape. <laughs> <Just> like, <laughs> do this. Yeah, DJ said you could
0: do it at a trailer park and lean into the low budget video vibe.
1: Oh, <laughs> well, yeah, that'd be good. Yeah, uh, just go out somewhere and uh, do it like, uh, well, it's funny, uh, Zach Galifianakis, uh, a while back, it's not. This is not dancing, but he did. Uh, he lives in North Carolina. Mm-hmm. He, uh, I don't know if he still does, but he's from Wilkesboro, North Carolina. It has a farm, and he, uh, he shot his own music video to a Kanye West song, uh, and that was kind of neat because it was the uh, two opposites coming together, you know, which I thought was cool. And I, I would love to uh, if I'm going to do that dance video, and I've thought about it. I've had other people bring it up to me like, oh, you need to, you need to call out Bert and uh, Tom. Yeah. Um I would like to I just know I would it would I would want to do it really good and it would take me forever and I would have to employ people in editing, backup dancers, all this crap and I'm like really for a 30 second video, I don't know. <laughs>
0: but it sometimes stuff <laughs> goes viral just from the phone, like, you know, a a a, a TikTok calling them out. Maybe all it takes to right. You know what I mean? A TikTok with your mom calling out Bert and Tom and you're both making <laughs> fun of them in some way. Like it could be that simple that strikes fire, you know? Yeah. And yeah. Then, maybe do that. And then maybe now you're dancing on stage again. It just comes full
1: circle. Now you're known as the dancing machine. Yeah. All right. Well maybe this is the time to do that because uh in a weird way, um, I just had a doctor's appointment not long ago. It's just a routine checkup, you know, just happened to be during this, uh, Corona crisis. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he goes, wow, you look really good. I, he goes, what have you been doing? I'm like, well, I can't go to planet fitness anymore cause they're closed. But my brother who is a health fanatic, he's a CrossFit fanatic, you know, he made a gym out of his garage and I've been going over there. And, um, since I can't go anywhere else, that's all I've been doing. And so this pandemic, I'm I'm the healthiest I've ever been because of this pandemic, so maybe now it is time to bring back the dances.
0: Well, you heard it here first, hot breath This is where it started, hot breath. <laughs> so let's yeah, just just like two more questions here, um, and we'll we'll get you on and out so you can start rehearsing your dance to take on Bert yeah. and Tom. Um, Gregory Hardy says. Uh, let's see. Do you have any memories you'd like to share of doing Gator bowl in 2008 as a university of Florida guy? I was thrilled when I heard you mention it in another talk you did.
1: Yeah. Yeah. That was crazy. Uh, that is the biggest audience that I've ever performed in front of like a live audience, of human beings. It was the Gator growl is the biggest pep rally in college sports. Um, the, uh, They hire big bands. They have big comedians come in every year. I mean, it's been going on. I mean, Bob Hope was one of the first guys to do it. Um, You've had tons of comedians over the years, big names that you know. I feel like I've heard Seinfeld
0: talk about it. I
1: think I've heard him talk about doing it, yeah. Jim Gaffigan, Seinfeld, um, you name it, man. There's a lot of big names, and I'm like, wow, this is going to be crazy. Um, God, I'm trying to think of who the – oh, God, the band – the band was big, too. Oh, God. They sing Abra, Abra, Kadabra. Oh, I, I won't reach out and grab you. Oh, who is that band? Anyway, they were there. And uh, so I got I had to go in first. And I want to say it's probably like 35,000 people, maybe. 35,000 people? Yeah, because <laughs> they do it, they do it um, in the football stadium. They have a stage set up in the end zone. And the audience just fills in the seats. So however many people come there for the Pep rally, that's how many people. And that thing you know, it probably holds like 50,000, but it was about 35, maybe 30,000 people. That's a lot of people, but um, Good night. The weird thing about it was there was no one immediately in front of you. So I had no one, no crowd. Because they had manicured the field for the game. They didn't want people on the field. So no one was on the field. Like I'm in the end zone looking at an empty field. The crowd is in a shoehorn around me in the, in, in the stands. And they're yards away. So you trying to look someone in the eyes and have a moment with them telling a joke is not an option. Um, and I remember asking Jim Gafkin like, well, do you have any tips for me to do this? He goes, well, just know that the crowd is so big and so far away from you that it takes a moment for the sound to carry. So you'll do a joke, and you're probably used to getting laughter immediately, but that won't happen. Even if the the joke worked, you're not going to know it for about three seconds. So it'd be like you tell a joke and boom, punchline, and it'd be like in your head you're going, one, two, and the crowd goes, "Ah." comes back with laughter. But that first three seconds is scary because you don't know if it worked and you're just standing there waiting. So what I did do was play to the camera. They had a camera guy uh, close to the stage. And so I would look right into the camera and they had your your face on these giant screens behind you Mm -hmm. that people in the stands could see. So really you're just playing to the camera guy and hoping that people in the stands are listening and getting the joke. But – that was Tim Tebow's last year at uh, Florida State. That was his senior year. And uh, it was really cool, man. They were really nice to me. I had a good time there.
0: I can't imagine the high after that. Because, you know, killing in front of 300 people, you're buzzing. But 35,000? You must
1: have been high for like a month. Right. Yeah. It was crazy. <laughs> it was fun. It was just one gig. I only had to do 15 minutes. Mm. Um, but thank God. I wouldn't have done longer than that. Uh, but it was fun. I made fun of Tim Tebow a little bit.
0: And they 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 went along with it, or did they take offense to it?
1: Yeah, I mean, I'm I mean, I really just sort of. Uh, I have football jokes, so it just changed the name. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Easy. yeah, yeah. Because you played, you played football, so and that yeah, was... I played football in high school, and then uh, I got kicked out of a football game. So I've, I've got a lot of uh, you know. It, it was easy for me to do that gig. It made sense. I had just won last comic standing. So it was, uh, I was at my peak, I guess. Yeah. And DJ
0: had referenced as well of like your storytelling style. Does it come from being in the locker room and things like that? Do you adapt it from that?
1: Mm, I don't think it locker room, had anything to do. I think it's more of just, uh, you know, that's just what I grew up listening to with Bill Cosby and those kind of people. um, I don't know. I don't know why. I think, I, well, in a weird way, I think it's harder. It, you got to be more clever to write really good jokes, hmm. where you can actually go up there and tell jokes and not have to act anything out and just go joke, 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 and that and that do well. You have to be very clever and very smart and have to be have a great vocabulary and be very succinct. Whereas that's just not the kind of human being I am. So I have to, like I say, play to my strengths, which is making a goofy face and telling a story and being likable and moving around and, you know, that kind of stuff. So unfortunately, I I did not acquire that skill, but I admire those who can.
0: But you have skills other people don't. So, yeah, it's very good overall note from this is to... D- d- uh, discover what your skill and strengths are and just double down on them. So,
1: yeah,
0: 100%. And people are saying the Steve Miller band was. That's it. Steve Miller was Abercrombie. Yes. So, two. Um, these are two quick ones to end on here, kiddos. Thank you to everyone that tuned in and asked your questions. And of course, uh, thank you to John for your valuable time here. The first one, Jody Carter is. Um, who is your favorite who are your favorite current comics
1: Uh, okay so I use a guy named Brent Blakeney he opens for me a lot on the road I met him in Raleigh very funny guy we did a
0: show we did a show in uh, New York together last year
1: oh very good yeah Yeah, yeah. you're familiar six feet seven inches tall (laughs) right so he's, uh, he serves many purposes for me. Not only is he a great comedian and fun to be around, but, you know, he's like my in, built-in bodyguard. Yeah. <laughs> um, so so I like Brent. I also love a guy named Dusty Slate, uh, who's really on fire right now yes. uh, from Nashville and has been touring around. And I've known him for years, and he's doing really well right now. So uh, those are my two favorites at the moment that people might not know about. Yeah, and Dusty's been—he did q and A, Q&A and he also did
0: um, an interview with us a few years ago as well. So yeah, good, good dude, great dude. Yeah, in a good time, as he says.
1: Well, there you go. That's an example of a guy who found his niche and is just and going for it. Right. Exactly. Smart guy from a trailer park, and has the branding with the thing like it's all like very smart. Very smart, but organic. It, you could tell yeah.
0: what, it attracts. I think what people appreciate about it is that it's authentic. He's not trying to play a facade. Right. It's all authentic to him, and he's yeah. just self aware enough.
1: Right. It just it, it happened organic. Like you're right. It happened on stage. He just found himself doing that and that's and getting an extra laugh. And he thought, well, I guess I should talk about why I do this. And it just became a thing. Boom. He didn't think, well, I need a thing. How about this? He just noticed he was doing it and then made that the thing.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. So the final one here, it's kind of a two parter. I'll combine between John Chappelle and DD because they're kind of along the same lines. But uh, John asks, um, can you say Hickory?
1: <laughs> I sure can. Let me give you the full monta here. <clears throat> I'm from Hackwick! <laughs> there you go.
0: And then yeah. and then Dee Dee asked, um, I have to ask this, but does that thing got a Hemi?
1: Yes, it sure does. <laughs> yeah. I that, that one, see, that's another thing that came that that just happened and it became a thing, you know? So so now I've had to write material based on that. Um, I didn't want to. I was just an actor, a gun for hire and that commercial happened and here I am. But um yeah, that's that's crazy how that caught on. Dude. I still get that all the time. Incredible. Oh, and DD says gold. I just loved
0: how at this point you're like, yes. It like you don't even act out anything, you're just like, yes.
1: Is it right. is it annoying at this point like yeah, I'll tell you, it's yes, it is a little bit. Um, because I mean, that's just my own thing, I got to get over that. But, <laughs> but what's, what's really good about it is, uh, it's a question. So, if someone had walked up and said, Hey, Hickory, you know, I just go, What's up? or like, uh, Hemi guy. But when they say, Does that thing got a Hemi? my brain has to answer the question, and so. I'm compelled. I'm like, sometimes I'm like, depends on what mood I am. If I'm in a good mood, I go, yeah, man, sure does. Or if I'm in a bad mood, I'm like, no, it does. What thing are you talking about? My penis? Yeah, I have a heavy power of penis. What you? So I like, I've always answered the question differently depending on my mood. Mm-hmm. And the problem is, is, it's a question. If it weren't a question, it wouldn't bother me so much.
0: Because <laughs> it evokes a response. You have to yeah, say something.
1: Like, right.
0: Oh, and I imagine all the traveling you do, and there's times you're tired and run down, and you've got to be like Hickory, or you know, wow.
1: <laughs> yeah, but well, funny. Hickory used to be a punchline in my in my act. I used to use it as a joke or whatever. But now, because because of Last Comic Standing, um, they showed me saying Hickory over and over again every episode. <laughs> So it looked like that's all all I talked about, when really that was one thing that they aired over and over again. They'd be like, and coming up next, the guy from Hickory. You know, they would do that all the time. And so I couldn't make it a punchline anymore because people already knew about it. So then what I would do is I'd come on stage in some town, you know, in in another state, and I would go, uh, hey, everybody, good to be here. I'm not from here. I'm from, and then do like this. And now the crowd goes, heck right, they do it. So in a weird way, like that has totally changed. It's totally shifted. It started as a punchline. Now it's like an audience, like it's a call to action. They all, they all do it with me. I go, <laughs> yay. And then I just move on.
0: <laughs> oh, you get it out of the way almost. So well, that's cool.
1: Yeah, get it out of the way up front. And everyone's like, yay, he said it. And then I can move on.
0: Great. Well... Yay. First off, I'm going to play the applause sound effect. Yay for all that you said today, John, you killed this and you were more than generous with your time. So, um, this is a show all about like comedy education and helping comics and all that. So the final thing is like, is there any advice you've learned over your 20 plus years of experience or anything you can kind of share with us in closing here to propel us into being better
1: comedians? This is a. You want me to give advice to other comedians? Um, I would say take two weeks off and quit. We got enough comedians. (laughs) No, I'm kidding. Go for it if it makes you happy. Go for it. Um, I'm just trying to. I'm just trying to stay hired, man. That's a that's Uh, a
0: veteran move right there. Young, keep people (laughs) quit. You're in the way. There's enough of us. I love that.
1: No, look. I don't know, figure out what you're good at and stay in that lane. I mean, it's okay to obviously okay to take risks. That's what this whole job is. But um, if you want quick success, I would say it's all about repetitions. The more you can do it, the better you're going to get, the quicker you'll get there. Record yourself, figure out what worked, what didn't, and, you know, have fun. And at the end of the day, please try to remember – your job is to get laughs. Period. Just know that. I see a lot of people not, not caring about that anymore, and, I, and, it, and it, it makes me sad. I'm like, well, this is good. I wouldn't call this a comedy special. I would call this a very informative lecture. Mm. Uh, but I didn't laugh that hard. Any, so any
0: stand out to you
1: that didn't tickle your fancy? Well, there's there's a couple on Netflix that uh, that I've watched, and I'm like, I okay, this is this is very informative. Like, I this could be a good TED talk, mm-hmm. but, I don't know, I'm not laughing. Like, okay, a lot of people, if you ask a lot of comedians, they'll say, uh, who are some of your favorite comedians? And everyone will say, at some point, say George Carlin, you know? And, yeah, he was one of the best. Um, he had tons of specials in his very beginning years, and his early years was very, very funny, but the older he got, the more you know, more ornery, gotten angry. And, and I found myself watching his late, his last special. I found myself doing this a lot going, Oh man. Yeah, he's right. That's true. And not this. <laughs> See, I want to get the laugh. So <laughs> I wasn't, he wasn't making me laugh in the end, but I don't know. But by, by that time he was already a legend. It didn't matter. But, um, I don't know. I guess I said too much.
0: No, it's almost like he had found his audience and could just like almost preach to them, as opposed to like when you're younger and you're having to prove yourself. There's, I'm sure there's a more of a fire beneath your creativity when you almost have to create success. But when you already have the success, it must be hard to withhold that standard to a degree.
1: Yeah, uh, that happens definitely. Um, I would encourage younger comics to 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 go for the laughs first and then. And then later on, after you found your audience, then you can get lazy.
0: <laughs> mm, preach, preach. All right. Yes, yeah, so get funny first, kids. Focus on getting <laughs> funny first. And I, that's, I'm a purist as well. Like, funny above everything is, is my I, MO. So it's so great to connect with a, a funny comic like you, John. If you could, let them know where they can uh, support you and follow you and all that jazz.
1: My podcast um if everyone would go to this website countryishpodcast.com Country-ish podcast. i'm very proud of it we have new episodes every friday it's on google it's everywhere apple uh, apple podcast spotify pandora iHeartRadio. radio anywhere you get a podcast it's there it's on youtube as well yeah. um check it out give it a chance and then pass it on and, and thanks buddy Thanks for having me, John. And I definitely think a lot of
0: comedians have podcasts where they're just like shooting shooting the shit with each other, but like I've, your approach is you're doing like an actual show production. You have a set, you have segments. Like I think it's important for comics to look at John's approach to podcasting and treating it like an actual production and not just like a hangout session with your friends.
1: It's, 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 yeah, those are are fine. Um, but the, the ones that work as hangout sessions are people who already have an audience, right? Um, you're not going to get new people listening to you, um, just to hang out. So to grow your podcast, I think it would be good to have segments. I'm still trying to learn that game too, though. I can't really preach too hard about that, but, uh, I'm only on episode 21 um, and we're loving it, man. So I hope right. you guys who are watching this give me a chance. Yes. Go
0: support. Go check out John. He's doing big things. So, John Reap, thank you so much for being on Hot Breath, my man. Ladies and gentlemen, we will be back on Monday with a Q&A with Alonzo Bowden. So-
1: oh. Alonzo Bowden was a judge on my season of Last Comic Standing. I'm a huge fan.
0: What?
1: That's yeah, so Yeah, tell awesome. him I said hello talk I, to him.
0: I definitely will. All right, Hot Breathiverse. We'll see you on Monday. Stay funny. Bye. Ooh. That is what Hot Breath is all about. Hot Brethren and sisterin, a 28-year comedy vet breaking down the game like nowhere else on the internet so if you want to get more of these interviews subscribe to our youtube channel subscribe to our podcast wherever you listen to your favorite podcast join that facebook group i'm telling you right now if you're a comedy fan or a comic or aspiring comic that facebook group is going to have something for you and you can join the mission of cultivating the next generation of great comics i thank you for your valuable time Thank you for all of you that have reached out, sharing so much gratitude for the show, reaching out to me on social media, saying, hey, I love this episode. This was my favorite tip. I would personally love to know what your favorite tip from this episode was. Let me know. I engage. I love talking to you. We are the hot breath of We are on this mission together. So if you enjoy and are inspired by this mission like I am, share it, pay it forward There are ways you can support the show through getting merch or the Patreon, but a free way to support all the work going in here is to share it with a person that you think would enjoy it. And I enjoyed your time today. So we'll be back next Monday, Hot Verse. But until then, I always end these episodes by thanking my wife for making the theme song. And thank you to you, Hot Brethren and sistren. For making all this possible. I love you and until next Monday, right here on Hot Bread.